Welcome and bienvenue and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Mac and Mabel. So who needs roses or stuff like that? So who wants chocolates? They'd make me fat And I can get along just fine Without a gushing valentine And I'll get by, kid With just the guy, kid And if he calls me And it's Colette Sir Walter Raleigh I don't expect And though I know I may be left Out How are we doing? I hope this episode of The Musical Man finds you well. We have a lot to talk about in regards to this week's subject, Mac and Mabel. We have a lot to talk about, but I don't want to, I don't want you to think that we are in a hurry. We were in a hurry during our Irma LaDuce episode, but for the purposes of this, oh, we have all the time in the world. And so I just want us to kick back and relax as we lean into, just gently lean into, the show facts for Mac and Mabel. Show me the show facts, let's do it. Today's subject took a long and winding road to Broadway with tryout productions in San Francisco, Los Angeles, St. Louis, and Washington, D.C. Reviews and ticket sales were promising in California, with the L.A. production generating $150,000 in its final week. But the show read as small within the sizable St. Louis venue, resulting in broader performances from the actors and, uh, by association, more negative reviews. And Richard Coe of the Washington Post described the D.C. engagement as having, quote, all the zip of a wet, very dead flounder, quote. I have searched high and low for this review, but it does not appear to be available online. That drove me nuts. Everyone cites the infamous flounder quote, but no one has the actual review. Ugh. 
Mac and Mabel fared no better in New York City despite the great number of changes made to address the show's concept, staging, tone, and overall appeal. As they say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, and if it is broke, maybe stop smashing it to bits in the name of fixing it. Mac and Mabel was a 1975 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on Broadway on October 6, 1974 at the Majestic Theater and ran for 66 performances. The book was written by Michael Stewart and music and lyrics were written by Mr. Jerry Herman. Yes, of course. This was Herman's sixth Broadway score following Milk and Honey, Hello Dolly, Ben Franklin in Paris, Mame, and Dear World. His seventh musical, The Grand Tour, only ran for 61 performances, but he bounced back in a major way with La Cage à Faux, future subject. I want to learn more about the Grand Tour as well as Miss Spectacular, which was recorded but never produced. Uh, do me a favor, let's produce Miss Spectacular. Where is that? Let's do that. Mac and Mabel is loosely inspired by the lives of Mac Sennett and Mabel Normand. Mac directed over 300 films in the early days of Hollywood, a great number of which starred Mabel. Example titles include Mabel's Lovers, Mabel's Adventures, Mabel's Stratagem, Mabel's Heroes, Mabel's Awful Mistake, Mabel's New Hero, Mabel's Dramatic Career, Mabel's Stormy Love Affair, Mabel's Bear Escape, Mabel's Strange Predicament, Mabel on the rocks, Mabel at the wheel, Mabel's nerve, Mabel's busy day, Mabel's married life, Mabel's new job, Mabel's latest prank, Mabel's blunder, and saving Mabel's dad. One of those titles, one of them is fake, by the way, one of them. If you can accurately guess the fake title, I will give you nothing. I will give you nothing. Leonard Spiegelglass is credited with the idea that led to the musical's creation, but it was Edwin Lester who took that idea to Jerry Herman. I just want to, I want to give credit where it's due. Let's continue with these show facts. The director of the original Broadway production was Gower Champion, musical director Don Pippin. Orchestrations, Philip J. Lang, choreographer, Gower Champion. Scenic design, Robin Wagner. Lighting design, Theron Musser. Sound design, well, we have an audio consultant, and that would be Abe Jacob. Costume design, Patricia Zibrat. I remember that last name. Hello again, Patricia. Patty. And the original Broadway cast included, this is not a full break, down, but we have Bernadette Peters and Robert Preston. More on Bernie and Robbie in just a moment, I promise. I want to finish out this cast. We have Lisa Kirk, James Mitchell, Cheryl Armstrong, Tom Batten, Roger A. Bigelow, Jerry Dodge, Nancy C. Evers, Robert Fitch, Bert Michaels, Christopher Murney, Frank Root, Marie Santel, and Stanley Simmons. Bernadette had previously, I told you we would round back to Bernadette, and now, oh my god, here we are. Bernadette had previously appeared in the following Broadway shows. The Most Happy Fella, The Girl in the Freudian Slip, Johnny No Trump, I couldn't make up these show titles if I tried, George M. Lestrada, and On the Town. Her next credit would be Sunday in the Park with George. Mac and Mabel was seen as a return to form for Robert Preston, who had not appeared on Broadway since I Do, I Do in 1966. 
Bear in mind the following figures. Peters was 26 when she landed the role of Mabel, and Preston was 56. Don't you love it when math gives you the creeps? Tony nods. All right, so Mac and Mabel was, of course, nominated for Best Musical. It was also nominated for Best Book of a Musical, Michael Stewart, Best Actor in a Musical, Robert Preston, Best Actress in a Musical, Bernadette Peters, Best Scenic Design, Robin Wagner, Best Costume Design, Patricia Sabrot, Best Choreography, Gower Champion, and Best Direction of a Musical, Gower Champion. So eight nominations in total, zero awards when all was said and done. Mac and Mabel was the only only Best Musical nominee from this season that did not also receive a nomination for Best Original Score. The Wiz took home that particular medallion, winning out over Shenandoah, The Lieutenant, and A Letter for Queen Victoria? If you've never heard of A Letter for Queen Victoria, you are in good company. It only ran for 18 performances, and if my analysis of the New York Times review means anything, it sounds like a chore and a bore. Let's talk about the plot of Mac and Mabel. Act 1, Scene 1, 1938. At 2 o'clock in the morning, movie director Mac Sennett appears at the entrance of his studio, pushing past the watchman in a drunken, almost violent display. Out of my way! Mac may have soiled his reputation and alienated all of his colleagues, but this studio belongs to him for one more night, and he plans to take full advantage of it. Thank you, very brunch. The studio is swallowed by darkness as Mac recalls how movies used to be made. Ah, back in the golden years, those rosy halcyon salad days. Scene 2, 1911. Flashback to the golden years, those rosy halcyon salad days. Mac is filming a comedy at his grubby studio in Brooklyn. Surrounding him are the performers and technicians who turn his cinematic visions into reality. The gang includes Lottie and Wally, a pair of silent film actors, Hella, an eternally beleaguered pianist, and Frank, a teenage paperboy who moonlights as Mac's gopher. The shoot comes to a halt when Mabel A. Normand steps in front of the camera. Mabel works for her family at the nearby deli. All she cares about is dropping off a knockwurst sandwich and collecting her 15 cents. But when Mac tries to remove her from the set, she flies into a madcap rage. The ensuing melee is caught on camera, much to Mac's delight, and he vows to turn Mabel into a first-class comedian. Mabel is horrified by this proposal, but when she sees herself on the big screen, fear gives way to delight. A flurry of Mabel comedies are soon unleashed upon an adoring public. Scene 3, Mac's Office in Brooklyn. The lone writer in Mac's employ has a meltdown upon discovering his script has been altered yet again. Mac tells the writer to take a hike. Fuck off. Who needs writers anyway? Nobody cares about writers. No one, that is, except for Mr. Fox and Mr. Kleiman, investors who could mean the difference between Mac moving to Hollywood or wallowing in Brooklyn. Mac pulls a fast one by introducing young Frank as their writer-in-residence, and in a snap in a jiffy, the studio becomes westward bound. Scene 4, the observation platform of a train. Mac observes Mabel as she improvises a poem, like you do. He teases her, but when Mabel presses the subject, he admits to devising poems himself as a child. Ah, you got me, Mabel. Mabel takes Mac back to her compartment for a plate of reheated veal and peppers. Yum.
<laughs> With Mac protesting every step of the way, he knows exactly what's going on. Mabel is into him. And sure, Mac is into Mabel, but a relationship is out of the question. No way, Jose. Mac is bad news. A total flop in the love department. And he tells Mabel as much, but they spend the night together anyway. Wah! Mac even goes so far as to present Mabel with a ring. It's a napkin ring, but she loves it all the same. To be clear, Mac categorically does not want to marry Mabel. No, they are merely having a laugh. Scene 5, Union Station, Los Angeles, 1912. This is the scene in which they arrive in Los Angeles on that train. They were just on that train. Well, now they're in L.A. and it's 1912. It was 1911. Now it's 1912. I guess the train trip pushed them into the new year. Time jumps are a regular uh, occurrence uh, in Mac and Mabel, so I guess we should get used to it. Upon arriving in the Sunshine State, Fox and Kleiman begin to wonder if serious, large-scale epics might be more appealing to audiences than comedies, Mac sets them straight. He did not get into this business to make art. He simply wants to make the world laugh. Scene 6, Max Hollywood Studio, 1913. Ah, time jump. Frank encourages Mabel to take the lead role in his latest script. An honest-to-goodness romance entitled Molly, okay? So his movie is called Molly. Her name is Mabel, but the movie is called Molly. You might want to write that down. It might get a little confusing. Mabel doesn't see herself as a real actress, but Frank disabuses her of that notion. The only reason Mabel doesn't believe in herself is because Mac doesn't believe in her. He's too busy giving orders and putting her down to appreciate what he's got. Mabel scoffs. Oh, that's not true. But when Mac begins to verbally abuse her for the umpteenth time, she proceeds to heave a pie in the director's face. Splat! A custard battle ensues, leaving the studio dripping from end to end. There are stage directions in the libretto as to the cleanup process, but you can't convince me that it was effective, and no amount of hand-waving would distract from it. Uh, don't watch us clean up the pies over there. Watch the scene we're doing over here. Yeah, like, sorry, you're going to have to bring the curtain down if you don't want me to watch the stagehands clean up pie. That's better than any theater. Scene 7. The Orchid Room of the Hollywood Hotel, 1919. Time jump. Mabel dances with William Desmond Taylor, a charming director who believes she has the makings of a true blue star. Mac interrupts, hello, it's me, Mac, to assert Mabel is not available and never will be. She belongs. She belongs to him is what she does. Ah. The inevitable argument ends with Mabel alone in the orchid room, venting her frustrations alongside a gaggle, a gang of dancing waiters. Oh, I'm sorry, did I say she was alone? I did. Well, I'm my apologies. There are waiters. Scene 8. The gates of Max Hollywood Studio. Mabel declares she is skipping out on a shoot day to visit William in Silver Lake. Fox and Kleiman panic. Oh, God. How are they going to make a movie without their star, Mabel? Mac is struck with a bolt of inspiration. Who needs Mabel when there are dozens, if not hundreds, of girls just waiting to be discovered on Santa Monica Beach? The resulting picture, Bathing Beauties, proves to be Mac's greatest success. Everything's coming up roses, even if Mac knows he's made a mistake by letting Mabel walk away. Act 2, Scene 1. Max 
Mac's Hollywood office 1923 time jump. Mac has just walked out of Mabel's latest movie, followed closely by Young Frank. We learn Mabel has made five pictures with William Desmond Taylor over the last five years. In that same time, Mac has directed four additional entries in the Bathing Beauties franchise, and, uh... Eh, the box office receipts are beginning to dwindle, it's true. Everyone agrees Mac should bring Mabel back into the fold, and they tell him as much at a story conference. Mac is notably in a bathtub during said conference. He agrees to contact Mabel and direct Molly, even if doing so feels like a kick to the knockwurst. Scene 2, Mac's Hollywood Studio. Mabel arrives at sunrise and is greeted by the Watchmen. It's a real Hogeye moment. Oh, Miss Mabel! Up here, Miss Mabel! It's me, Hogeye! They reminisce while nibbling on coffee and donuts, and the Watchmen makes it clear to Mabel how everyone is overjoyed to have her back. This leads to an enormous production number in which Mabel hops into a crane and is flown out over the audience, like you do. Mac and Mabel meet face-to-face for the first time in years. The studio holds its breath. Oh, what's gonna happen? To everyone's shock and amazement, Mac unleashes a torrent of affection he has kept inside for far too long. But that's only what Mac wanted to do. In reality, Mac is only concerned with turning Molly into yet another comedic frivolity, one populated with his latest creation, the Keystone Cops. The Keystone concept leads to a series of successful films and the derailment of Molly. Mabel, feeling neglected once more, agrees to go to France with William. Scene 3, Pier 88 in New York, one week later. Small time jump, small. Mac sneaks aboard a ship bound for France and confronts Mabel, pretending as if their encounter is merely a coincidence. Oh, Mabel, what are the odds? The conversation goes well at first, with Mac vowing to direct Molly as a straight romance, I swear, but somewhere along the line, everything goes to pot once more. Mac heads back into the city, and William introduces Mabel to heroin! Oh, that's right. They made room in this show for heroin. William refers to the drug as angel dust, which makes no sense. I'm guessing he's not an expert on the subject. Scene four, Mac explains how everyone in his life proceeded to walk out of his life. I should say he explains it to us, the audience, in one of several moments that break the fourth wall. He does that routinely throughout the show. Anyway, Ella became the head of the music department at Universal. Wally found a new comedy partner. Frank wrote a bunch of talkies. And Lottie hit it big into talkies with her star turn in the Vitagraph Varieties of 1929. We crossfade to the home of William Desmond Taylor, where Mabel is lost in a dust-fueled haze. From another room, we hear five rapid-fire pistol shots. One, two, three, four, five, bang! William has been murdered. Who could have done this? Who? Could it be Sergei, a character who never speaks but visibly detests William, despite being his maybe, maybe not lover? I don't know what the show's trying to say there. I've decided Sergei is a murderous queen. Let me have this. Let me have this. 
Scene 5, a split between Mac's office and Mabel's bedroom. Frank, Kleiman, and Fox are eager to talk business with Mac, but all he can do is read the papers and worry about Mabel. Oh, these papers, the media, they believe she 86 William, and Mac wants her to stand up for herself. Ugh. But as Frank points out, if the murder rap doesn't ruin Mabel, the heroine will. Mac attacks Frank. Ooh, what the hell are you talking about? You mousy church mouse, mouse pipsqueak, fuck mouse! My Mabel would never do that heroin shit. Never! Mac is on edge. He decides to pay Mabel a visit. Mabel is also on edge. High, drunk, you name it. Mac presents her with the napkin ring from their trip to California, a token Mabel has literally been trying to find throughout the entire show, over the course of years. She's always wondering, where's that napkin ring? Well, I guess he had it the whole time. Mac promises Mabel a happy ending, and they even wind up making Molly. But the movie is never released. It sits on a shelf gathering dust, and Mabel dies in 1930. Mac knows this is how the story ends, but he refuses to go out on a gloomy note. No, he envisions a spectacular, silent movie wedding with all the trimmings. Everyone is in attendance. Lottie, Wally, Ella, Frank, Fox, Kleiman, the bathing beauties, and the Keystone Cops. Mabel gets her napkin ring, the preacher gets a pie to the face, and the married couple walks off into the sunset. The end. I love how this jerk can't give Mabel a proper wedding, even in his imagination. She wanted to be taken seriously, and he wanted the last laugh, which is exactly what he gets. Based on what I've read, it would appear the tryout production in DC removed this slapstick wedding fantasy in an effort to give Mabel's death more weight. The ending has always been a sticking point throughout Mac and Mabel's history. Is it too dark? Is it too frivolous? What do you people want? And I do not envy anyone who decides to roll up their sleeves and solve the problem once and for all, because I don't view the ending as some ungodly disaster. There will always be those who prefer to separate comedy from drama because it's less complicated and emotionally jarring, I suppose. But who cares about them? Who cares about those people? Give me a tragic comedy or a comedic tragedy. So what if the balance is out of whack when all is said and done? Did that ever stop Baz Luhrmann? Go for it! No one lives forever. This commentary is inconsistent. You are inconsistent, buddy. You are inconsistent. You may have been confused when I said, and Mabel dies in 1930. How did she die, Jonathan? Well, the real Mabel Normand died after an extended struggle with tuberculosis. But in the musical... Mac simply states that Mabel died. No explanation is offered as to how she died, which might lead you to assume heroin was the culprit. Mac and Mabel goes out of its way to blur the line that divides fact from fiction, but this is easily the strangest decision Michael Stewart makes. Why are we avoiding tuberculosis as a subject? Is tuberculosis not as sexy as heroin, dramatically speaking? That could the tuberculosis could have been the whole thing. The whole thing throughout the entire show. She struggled. She's hiding it from people. I mean, Moulin Rouge, I basically referenced it before. Well, let's just do that. The news of Mabel's death is delivered far too abruptly, I will say that. She's a person who passed away, not a forgettable TV show that was canceled mid-season. We can give it a little bit more flair. Between the pie fight, the fully operational crane, and several pre-shot film sequences featuring members of the cast, I didn't even mention those, I can only assume Mac and Mabel must have been a 
pain in the ass to produce so expensive. Again, I ask, how do you pull off and walk away from a pie fight every night, night after night? I can practically feel the white, hot resentment radiating from the wardrobe department. What a pain in the ass that is. Holy shit. Okay, great. Thank you for this enormous basket of slop-covered dresses and suits. We'll take care of that for you every fucking night. Ugh. For the purposes of this week's episode, I read the original 1974 Broadway libretto by Michael Stewart, which is available via this, this service called Scribda. It's S-C-R-I-B-D. Scribda. S-C-R-I-B-D. So you can read this libretto as part of a free Scribda trial. What an awful name for this service. I mean, don't get confused. This is not a commercial for Scribda. Uh, just do what I do. Sign up for a free trial. Download the PDF. You can just download it and then cancel the cancel the trial. That's what I say to you. I also listened to the 1974 original Broadway cast album of Mac and Mabel, which is available for free via archive.org. Though, as always, I, I don't say this enough. I am more than willing to send that to you. I will send you the libretto, any cast albums you want from my collection. My What is mine is yours. I will send it to you via Dropbox. Anything you want. I am an incredibly generous person who deserves to go to heaven. I listened to the 1988 London concert cast album, also available via archive.org. All of these albums actually are. They managed to pack a hell of a lot into this concert. It's a great album. I must say, we have old Jerry Herman on piano. Tommy Toon is, uh, he's leading a small battalion of tap dancers, and the roles of Mac and Mabel are split between seven performers. We've got George Hearn, Dennis Quilly, Stubby K, Paige O'Hara, Francis Raffel, Debbie Shapiro, and Georgia Brown. Do yourself a favor and make time for this recording. The energy of the audience is incredible. You will feel as if you are right there with them. I also listened to the 1995 original London cast album. I wouldn't blame anyone for skipping this, as the lead performances from Howard McGillan and Caroline O'Connor are in desperate need of ooh, recalibration. O'Connor is relying on an inconsistent accent that makes us sound like Betty Boop, minus the confidence. And McGillan is far too loud and severe. He's an ingenue who's out for blood. I hate it. Upon further reflection, you can definitely skip the 95 album. Do me the favor of not listening to it. And okay, so regarding the Tony Awards, none of the best musical nominees performed during the 1975 ceremony, which I believe we would have mentioned during our coverage of The Lieutenant. Instead, performances focused on musicals produced at the Winter Garden Theater where the ceremony took place, those musicals being Mame, Follies, and the 1974 Angela Lansbury revival of Gypsy. I will never bring this up again, so write it down. Before we move on to the score, I would like to highlight a few selections from Michael Stewart's libretto. This is from Act 1, Scene 1, right at the top of the show. This is an instance in which, <laughs> well, he does this several times, Mac is yelling at the audience via a monologue. Here is that monologue. Quote, What do you know about making movies? Well, let Senate tell you not a goddamn thing. Go on, take over this dump. I don't give a damn. I, I had what I wanted out of it. 
But don't tell me you're taking it over to make movies. I'm Senate. I know the difference. Oh, you'll make money with the crap you grind out, which we haven't in the past five years, have we, Mr. Kleiman? But that's because some son of a bitch with a Victrola is back in the screen cranking his little heart out. And Jolson talks, uh, Swanson talks, Rin Tin Tin talks, and it still ain't movies. Hey, what are you going to do five years from now when they're tired of talkies? What are you going to give them then? Colors? Or a new size screen? Or bare butts and dirty words? Go on, try all the tricks you can think of. It's still not going to be worth one reel of birth of a nation. Not one frame of Chaplin. Not one eighth of a quarter of an inch of my Mabel. Quote, I enjoy this monologue well enough, but the characterization is inconsistent. For example, I have a hard time believing Mac would have enjoyed or even seen a movie like Birth of a Nation, which is exactly the sort of grand-scale epic he claims to despise. It's also a deeply racist film. We're supposed to relate to this guy on some level, right? Yes, in that case, maybe pick literally any other movie. Well, not any other movie. A movie that isn't deeply racist. Mystic Pizza, there we go. And hold on, just wait a second. Mac is offended by bare butts. Bare butts? Mac, my brother in Christ, you made five Bathing Beauties movies. Those are softcore porn pictures for the easily embarrassed middle class. Wake up and smell the bare butts. Here's a little snippet from Act 1, Scene 3. This is the scene in which the writer confronts Mac about uh, the script that he's written and how the ending has been changed. The writer, the, the writer has no name. The writer says, that ending with Mabel up on the horse, that was not in my script. It's right here in black and white. The horse throws the girl, then they all get trampled by a stampede of enraged buffalo, then there's an epilogue in heaven with all of them wearing wings because they're angels and that's what makes the allegory. I find that to be very funny. <laughs> Act 1, scene 3. Everyone yells at Mac. They, they, this is a scene in which everyone yells at Mac. They enter the office one by one. So the first character that I'm going to quote here is Ella, the pianist. She enters and she says, Mac, you get that piano tuned or I quit. Two G's are busted. One E flat is stuck. The C won't go down and the B won't come up. Then Wally enters and he says, I gotta have that back salary, Mac. My landlady would have thrown me out already, only we got the arrangement. But I can't go on much longer. She's nearly 80 and a devil. And then Mabel enters with, <laughs> with this. She says, I just found out other movie stars get paid. I have a feeling Bernadette brought the house down with that punchline. Meanwhile, Wally's over here fucking his septuagenarian landlord. Yeah, I would call that an arrangement, all right. <laughs> 79-year-old woman, ah, you don't have to pay the rent if you fuck me. What is going on with Wally in the, in the far background of this show? Act 1, scene 6, Mac yells at Mabel. I just like this monologue and I want to deliver it for you. This is just an excuse for me to act. I don't know, maybe you like it, maybe you don't. Here's this monologue from Mac yelling at Mabel. Look, Miss Normand, you make a lot of money. People all over the world know your name. You've got a car, nice clothes, a beautiful home, and you didn't get any of them because you remotely resemble anything you might call an artist. You got them because I counted for you. One, you walk. Two, three, you turn. Four, five, six, you smile. Seven, you cry. Eight, you laugh. Norma Talmadge is an artist. Lillian Gish is an artist. You, Miss Norman, can count up to eight. 
And if I hadn't taught you that, you'd still be back in that bean wagon asking for your 15 cents. Now I am going to count once again, and you are going to do what passes for acting. He's such a jerk. <laughs> Act 2, Scene 1, Lottie and Ella having stormed into the story conference. If you, if you remember, they, they find Mac in a tub. He's in a bathtub during this story conference. Lottie and Ella enter the scene, and Lottie says to Ella, Ah, oh, you're right, Ella. He has got three. I'm sorry, but if your musical has a joke about someone having three balls, it can't be all that bad. Never mind anything else I say throughout this episode. We are keeping the three balls joke. And then I have just one more selection here from the libretto that I want to share with you. It's from Act 2, Scene 3. Mac encounters Mabel on the boat to France. Mabel says, Mac, what are you doing here? And Mac says, what does it look like? Seeing people off. Uh, the Hoffmans, you heard me mention them. Ed and Alma, oh, great couple. You gotta meet him. He's a barrel of laughs and she wears glasses. I find that to be very funny. <laughs> He's a barrel of laughs, she's got glasses, <laughs> end of story. It is now time for us to deconstruct the Mac and Mabel score, so we will begin with the Overture, the Broadway album Overture. Patty, Betty, can we hear that please? Thank you! <laughs> Mabel Overture became famous the world over when English ice dancing team Torrell and Dean, Jane Torrell and Christopher Dean, selected the piece for their gold medal winning routine, which was presented at the 1982 World Figure Skating Championships in Copenhagen. Torrell and Dean were also featured at the 1984 Olympics, where their performance was covered by the BBC. The broadcast inspired a sudden and massive demand in the UK for the Broadway recording. The album was subsequently reissued and topped out at number six on the English charts. The overture became so undeniably ubiquitous among Brits that it inspired David Jacobs to joke about it while hosting the 1988 London concert. I say joke, but David Jacobs has the delivery of a grandfather gazing wistfully at the moors, so your mileage may vary in terms of your laughter. Very gentle humor is what I'm 
Jones saying, What do I, the musical man, think about this overture? Why, I dare say it's stupendous. The opening portion evokes an image of cartoon bakers bumbling about a cookie factory run amok. And if that ain't the premise for a silent comedy, I don't know what is. For the purposes of this bit, I need you to picture the old Cinnamon Toast Crunch mascots, Bob, Quello, and Wendell. One of them was named Quello. Look, I don't make the news. I only report it. Movies were movies when you paid a dime to escape. Cheering the hero and hissing the man in the cape. Romance and action and thrills. Partner cars gold in them hills. Movies were movies when during the titles you'd know. You'd get a happy ending, dozens of blundering cops in a thundering chase. Getting a bang out of lemon meringue in the face. Bandits attacking a train. One little tramp with a cane. Movies were movies were movies when I ran the show. Were movies when Pauline was tied to the track. After she trudged through the ice with the babe on her back, girls at the seashore would stand all in a row in the sand, rolling their stockings an inch and a quarter below. The line of decency and Swanson and Keaton and Dressler and William S. Hart. No one pretended that what we were doing was art. We had some guts and some luck, but we were just making a buck. Movies were movies were movies when I ran the show. According to the stage directions in the libretto, Max sings nearly all of Movies Were Movies in Total Darkness. The lights rise eventually, of course, but can you imagine sitting in the Majestic and hearing Robert Preston's voice emanating from the inky depths? That is a bold and spooky choice. I can see how it would contribute to the perception that Mac and Mabel was too dark. I mean, I'm literally in darkness over here, but if I were in the director's chair, cue the conical cap, I would make it happen. You want to get nuts? Come on, let's get nuts. I'm still having a hard time when it comes to identifying the signposts and boundaries of Mac's frame of reference. The opening number cites Buster Keaton and Marie Dressler, which makes sense. They were comedy pioneers. Of course, Mac would love them. But we're also tipping our hats to Gloria Swanson and William S. Hart. And they were not exactly known for their humor, no. Buster Keaton does have a cameo in Sunset Boulevard, which stars Gloria Swanson, and he had a contentious relationship with William S. Hart, so Buster's, he's connecting a lot of these dots, according to Wikipedia. That, that's, that's what I read, at least. Uh, focus, Jonathan. I just think if you're writing for a character who only cares about comedy, his heroes should be a bunch of comedians. Forget about everything else. Uh, keep it simple, stupid. I've said my piece. Miss Waitress from Flatbush, get down from up there. Don't you know that you're out of your class? Miss Waitress from Flatbush, I hope you're aware you're behaving like some little ass. Hey, Miss, 
with perfection stamped on every feature. She was plain little Nellie, the kid from the deli, but mother of God, look what happened to Mabel. From now on, this pile of flesh shall be considered something pretty special. And Miss BLT down is the toast of the town. Mary and Joseph, what happened to Mabel? Every gesture and position that she takes is smart and meticulous. Talk about the magic that the camera makes. But this is ridiculous. Hold your tongue and hold your snickers for the new enchantress of the flickers. Is that plain little Nelly, the kid from the deli? So rattle me, beef. Look what happened to Mabel. Someone who was plain as mutton on the screen is cuter than a button. And the girl with the pickles who hustled for nickels is something to see. Look what happened to Mabel yesterday. A chip collector, but today just turn on that projector. And Miss Avenue R is a regular star. Mother McCree, look what happened to Mabel. Up to now, I never really knew that I could be so ambitious. But suddenly, I know I have to say goodbye to bagels and knishes. I know that you might think I'm balmy, but the clean up corn beef. week, I don't believe I had ever heard Bernadette Peters at such an early stage of her career. She already had a laundry list of Broadway credits, which I would have provided to you earlier, but still, she was so young, 26 years old, and she is an undeniable revelation throughout Look What Happened to Mabel. You hear me? Beyond fresh, beyond refreshing. No one sounded like Bernadette in 1974, and no one sounds like her today. And I'll go one step further, no one has played Mabel better. She enters like a lamb and goes out like a lion. It's no wonder Sondheim brought her aboard for Sunday in the Park with George. When it comes to the lyrics, look what happened to Mabel is a real smorgasbord. A smorgasbord, a real spread. Here are the lines that leapt out to me from the page. Quote, Someone who was plain as mutton on the screen is cuter than a button. And the girl with the pickles who hustled for nickels is something to see. How about, I know that you might think I'm balmy, but the queen of corned beef and salami is a glorious goddess who's busting her bodice. How about, hold your tongue and hold your Snickers. Mabel's talking about the candy bar, right? Hold your Snickers. If I'm wrong, I'm probably wrong. I blame all of this talk about pickles and salami. I know. I'm sure that he means hee-hee-hee. That kind of snicker. Hee-hee-hee. Not that. Um-um-um. Not, not, not. Um-um-um. Hee-hee-hee. I know, I know. This time it's the big time in a short time we can be the cherry on the top of the sunday the shiny star on top of the tree so you better grab it 
with your both hands when that great moment arrives cause this time it's the big time it's the big time of It's the plus This time we won't say Those lucky bastards <laughs> This time those lucky bastards are us Ain't we something? Farewell to the small time To the flea bags and the dimes Cause this time It's the big time It's the big time of Lisa Kirk is a titan. She is a bar of milk chocolate and Irish coffee on a winter's night. And you better believe I dropped everything. I, I stopped dead in my tracks to focus on her performance of Big Time. That voice could blow a house down. It knocked the wind out of me, that's for damn sure. Was I disappointed when Kirk was forced to make room for the rest of the company? Absolutely. This is Lisa's time, people. Lisa needs braces. Dental plan. Give her some fucking room, what do you I truly believe a lot of air goes out of this number when everyone else shows up. We start barreling toward this big finish, supposed big finish, that feels unearned and chaotic, like we're trying and failing to recapture the spirit of put on your Sunday clothes. I'll tell you this much, I do not need that tambourine. Subsequent recordings need to push that tambourine to the back of the mix. But on the Broadway album, it's a distraction. One more nitpick and then I swear we'll move on. Oh, how I swear to the Lord above, let me into heaven. This time, those lucky bastards are us is a surprisingly crowded line from Jerry Herman. This time, those lucky bastards are us. It's very crowded. He doesn't normally pack this amount of language into such a tight space. The cast can barely articulate it. This time, those lucky bastards are us. It's very difficult to sing. We're aiming for madcap and tumbling into madness. Oh. 
I won't send roses or hold the door. I won't remember which dress you wore. My heart is too much in control. The lack of romance in my soul will turn you gray, kid. So stay away, kid. Forget my shoulder when you're in need. Forgetting birthdays is guaranteed. And should I love you, you would be the last to know. I won't send roses and roses suit you so. Face is frantic, my tempers cross with words romantic. I'm at a loss. I'd be the first one to agree that I'm preoccupied with me, and it's inbred, kid. So keep your head, kid. In me you'll find things like guts and nerves. But not the kind thing that you deserve. And so, while there's a fighting chance, just turn and go. I won't send roses, and roses suit you. about it my scary skeletons i won't send roses is not only the best song from mac and mabel it is also one of the best songs in the jerry herman canon everyone loves to praise jerry for his blockbuster numbers but that man knew how to mine romantic wistfulness and melancholy from the ether and slap it down on the page have you or have you not heard kiss her now from dear world how many times do i have to recommend that to you ah it's hard to articulate how much I enjoy Philip J. Lang's Broadway orchestrations. The orchestra steals the show from the actors on several occasions, and the strings sound especially gorgeous during Roses. Dying and becoming a part of that sound would be heaven for me. A lot of talk about 
heaven this week? I'm sorry. My notes are, they're littered with heaven references. I don't know what's going on. What a soothing idea, though, to become a part of that sound. As far as Mac is concerned, I Won't Send Roses is a deeply moving and fascinating piece of character development. You get the sense that this character has never allowed himself to be this vulnerable, and it's all in the name of explaining to Mabel that he is heartless. I am opening myself up to you so I can prove to you how empty I am. Robert Preston is a master at work on this track, so sincere and comfortable in his own skin, which is not a compliment, unfortunately, I would apply to some of his other numbers. The role of Mac must have felt similar to Preston, who always had a hard time escaping the shadow of the music man. Like Professor Harold Hill, Mac is a born salesman who can bring anyone over to his side of the aisle, but he plays better to a crowd and has difficult time forging real connections. But we'll get to the music man at a later date. A much later date. Ooh, before I forget, Howard McGillan should have been prosecuted for what he did to this song. His performance on the 95 London album is so shrill and flashy and utterly devoid of real feeling, a colossal disappointment from end to end. It's called Acting, Howard. Try it sometime. A special announcement? All right, listen up, pay attention. We will not be hearing any audio from I Want to Make the World Laugh or My Heart Leaps Up or Hit Him on the Head, which eventually replaced My Heart Leaps Up, because all of these songs are about Mac's love of comedy and none of them amount to a hill of beans. Who decided we needed two songs about comedy anyway? We want to make the world laugh. Okay, fine. Literally, don't tell me, show me. Make me laugh. Don't talk about wanting to make me laugh. Hit him on the head is just straight up bad. Ooh. Oh, oh. This team was hell-bent on improving Mac and Mabel, and that song is a great example of how they only made it worse. Don't make anyone sit through Hit him on the Head. Bad song. Howard McGillan, Howard, I gotta get back to you right now. I, I gotta circle back to you. I am not going to make our listeners sit through even a moment of your performance, but someone needs to say this. You do not sound like someone who loves comedy. You sound like someone who's about to star in a Frank Wildhorn musical about Jack the Ripper. Lunging at the audience, your hands twisted into a series of claws. It's all wrong, babe. Oh, I love comedy so much. <laughs> and if I can't have comedy... Comedy? No one will. <laughs> you want to know how I got these comedies? Ooh, it sucks. I gotta give my life some sparkle and fizz And think a thought that isn't wrapped up in his The place that I consider paradise is wherever he ate Wherever he ate No more to wither when he's grouchy and gruff No more to listen to him bellow and bluff Stuff wherever he ain't, wherever he ain't, enough of being bullied and bossed. Ta ta, I'll be the zane and get lost. I walked behind him like a meek little lamb and had my fill of his not giving a damn. I'll go to Sydney or Salonis, I am wherever. Wherever he 
Better than a furious and ferocious Bernadette. <laughs> when paired with Lang's thrilling orchestrations, her commitment and control turns wherever he ain't into a five-alarm fire that takes out everything in its path. There is no escape. The emotional journey of this song could easily be applied to Dot in Sunday in the Park with George. I wish to go to the Follies, Mac. Oh, <laughs> when are we going to the Follies, Mac? Mac? Speaking of Follies, let us now segue into our next Mac and Mabel tune, Hundreds of Girls. I'll make a star and a half out of that one. The one with the dimples, the redhead, the fat one. How about the one on the blanket, the one playing ball? Let's take them both. Oh, to hell with it. Let's take them all. What gives a man ginger and snap? Going through life with his little old lap Full of hundreds and hundreds of girls What gives a man power and punch Tina for breakfast and Lena for lunch Having hundreds and hundreds of girls Show him a blonde And something in his soul will leap to respond but then again, he's also terribly fond of this brunette. And so instead of one dandy dish, pass him the candy dish. I'll sprinkle spice into his life to make him forget that he's stuck with his wife. Give him hundreds and hundreds of girls. I realized something was off about Preston's performance while listening to Hundreds of Girls. He's reaching for some of these notes and brushing up against his natural limit in the process. It doesn't sound painful a la Raul Esparza in Leap of Faith, but someone should have realized an adjustment was in order. I'm looking at you, musical director Don Pippen. If Robert is audibly cracking on it, give me hundreds! Hundreds! Then we need to do something about it. It's too much for him. Circling back to my illusion from a moment ago, Hundreds of Girls is a lesser version of beautiful girls from Sondheim's Follies. Two shades of the same color, with one being the brighter and more captivating shade. I'm sure this comment would have driven Jerry Herman insane. But what can you do? If I ran the zoo, I would have arranged for the two numbers to go up against each other during the Tony's broadcast. <laughs> Cage match, Thunderdome, who runs Town? Setting my hastily drawn comparisons aside, I do wish to highlight these lyrical amuse bouche from Mr. Herman. Okay, these are lyrics from hundreds of girls. Quote, What gives a man power and punch? Tina for breakfast and Lena for lunch. Quote, and how about, quote, to hell with propriety, viva variety. Quote, I love that. That is scrumptious stuff. Woo, woo, woo. The dingy curtains seem a little brighter 
Note that when Mabel comes in the room is the number that puts Mabel in a crane. She flies over the audience like a god. Mabel is your new god, and you will treat her accordingly. When Mabel comes in the room is the final entry in Jerry Herman's Best Woman in the World trilogy of songs, a series which began with the title numbers from Hello Dolly and Mame. The sentiment is crystal clear in all of these songs. Dolly, Mame, and Mabel are the best women in the world. When Dolly, Mame, and or Mabel arrive at your door, it is time to drop everything and roll out the red carpet. Do you understand? They make this puke world bearable. You will not disrespect them ever. Mabel's anthem very nearly becomes a clone of Dolly's when the company sings, and I can swiftly shed the strain of the years the very moment her first footstep appears. This is a faster, more verbose variation on Dolly will never go away. Promise you'll never go away again. I have identified the DNA. I am a scientist. I use a microscope to determine my findings. I swear, I promise, I'm not trying to play these easy gotcha games with Jerry Herman. The man can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. I'm acting like he's alive. And I would rather a composer be derivative of their own work, of their own work, than derivative of other composers. Are you listening? Andrew Lloyd Webber, you detestable slugworth. Forget you by next year 
strong desire to revisit Time Heals Everything because the orchestrations really are that beautiful, and I could not get enough of Bernadette's voice. I'm repeating myself, but this woman is an icon, and we cannot take her for granted. Where is her solo engagement on Broadway? Her Eliza's at the palace, if you will. Time may heal everything, but Miss Peters only has so much of it. I'm sorry, have we heard any audio from the 1988 London concert? No? Okay, well, let's rectify that now. Here is Georgia Brown singing Time Heals Everything. If I'm patient, the break will mend. And one fine morning, the hurt will end. So may moments fly autumn winter I'll forget you by next year some year though it's hell that I'm going through some Tuesday Thursday April August autumn winter next year some marvelous and fascinating, I'm all about it. Brown's performance reads as the origin story for a tragic villain, like Medea or Yzma from The Emperor's New Groove. She has an Eartha kit by way of Paris qualities, is what I'm trying to say about George Brown. Why do Mac and Mabel never share a number? I might as well throw this in here. Forget about the 90-second trifle you hear on the 95 London recording. Now, that's a little more than a reprise of a look what happened to Mabel. I want my MTV. I want an honest-to-goodness duet for these characters. I suppose a point is being made here how Mac and Mabel never actually unite despite their affection for one another, but a duet would have gone a long way toward helping audiences root for 
them as a couple. They argue far too much. We need at least one moment where the score pops them onto the same page emotionally. You're only making it harder for yourself by putting them in silos. I don't know what I expect people to do. Jerry Herman is not alive, but I, I don't know what to tell you. I can't leave you like this. It's not my way. So I'd like to show you how Max Sennett would have ended this story if only life had been a movie. I promise you a happy ending like the ones that you see on the screen. So if you've had a bad beginning, love will come out winning in the closing scene. And when you find it rough, Contending with the grind that the world puts us through, I can promise you a happy ending that has you loving me.
apologies to Robert Preston, but George Hearn's rendition of I Promise You a Happy Ending does a much better job of conveying Mac's heartache and its steady transformation into a sort of hope, a sort of wistful hope. Preston is too cheeky, too guarded in a way, whereas Hearn is unafraid to plumb the depths. Go figure, the guy who played Sweeney Todd knows a little something about tragic romance. And how about the Stephen Hill singers serving as George Hearn's backup? I adore a good choir, I must say. They sound fantastic. Mac's fantasy wedding should involve roses. Hear me out on this. I'm just spitballing. Mac presents Mabel with a mammoth bouquet of roses, and maybe she presents him with the pie. Or maybe it's not a wedding at all. Maybe it's a pageant or a dedication ceremony in Mabel's honor, which would help to contextualize the presentation of the roses. I'm very, I'm hell-bent on the roses. Uh, here I go. There I go, trying to fix the ending of Mac and to Mabel like so many before me. I told myself, Jonathan, don't go poking around the bear traps. Don't go chasing waterfalls. You'll only get yourself hurt. But come on already. I'm right about the roses. Mac told Mabel he would never send her roses. Never, never, never. But he should give them to her now. It's on the nose. Yes, it's a very fine point we're making. Or, or, ooh, shut up. Let me talk for once. For once. What if we did a reprise of movies were movies after this number? So we do, I promise you, a happy ending. But then, then, right at the tail end, we get a movies were movies reprise, and we change the lyrics so that Max sings, movies were movies were movies when Mabel ran the show. Okay, that's... Uh, that is a very fine point that I'm making. <laughs> I mean, I imagine Mac is alone again in that moment, uh, sober and serious for the first time in a long while. It might work. I don't know. Could someone please get this bear trap off of my leg? It hurts. The water from the waterfall. It's filling my lungs. I'm drowning. That's all I have for you in terms of the score deconstruction. It is now time to hear from our fine, fine sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. And then I saw her face 
And that's all we have? There's no... Okay. Well... Final thoughts regarding Mac and Mabel, please. My God, I have nothing left for you, my brain. <laughs> it's empty. I'm so sweaty, Schwitzy. I have nothing to give to you. I have nothing. The 1975 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was The Wiz, the super soul musical, wonderful Wizard of Oz. And yes, I will always refer to it by its full title. Well, not always. I don't think I'll do that in our actual episode about The Wiz, but I, I like to be, I like to be, you know, serious about these things. The full title is The Wiz, the Super Soul Musical, Wonderful Wizard of Oz. And the additional Best Musical nominees that season were The Lieutenant, Past Subject, and Shenandoah, which is the only show at this point. No, okay, so yes, we haven't covered The Wiz, and we haven't covered Shenandoah, so we have two more shows in this set of nominees. I find in favor of The Wiz. I feel like The Wiz should keep its best musical medallion. We're not giving it to Mac and Mabel. No, court is now adjourned. Get out of my face. I will now rank Mac and Mabel against all of the other shows we have talked about here on the podcast. As always, if you want to take a look at that ranking, go to twitter.com for as long as it exists, slash musicalmanpod. You'll find a link tree. From there, you'll go to our spreadsheet. Ah, yeah, the second tab. That's where that ranking is. I'm putting Mac and Mabel at number 39 between Natasha, Pierre, and the Great Comet of 1812 at number 38 and The Mystery of Edwin Drood at number 40. As far as show-related ephemera is concerned, I would like to begin with a, a piece of audio from a documentary, the name of which is Torval and Dean, Path to Perfection. This would have aired, I believe, on the BBC on January 24th, 1984. Let's hear that audio now. Just as Carrie and Cousins had educated the public to figure skating, Torval and Dean were now reviving interest in ice dance, until now regarded as figure skating's poor relation. While millions watched on television, spectators at the Copenhagen rink were intrigued by their free dance routine, worked around the Broadway show Mac and Mabel. It was revolutionary. It lifted four minutes of music from the show unaltered. A large British contingent waited anxiously to see how the judges would react, none more anxiously than Jane's parents and Chris's father and stepmother. Were you responsible at all for Jane taking up the sport? No, no. She just took it up on her own and she's enjoyed it ever since. No pressure at all. Right. What about you? Did Chris follow in your footsteps at all? Oh, no, never had a pair of skates on in my life. <laughs> never. <laughs> never risked it. No, no, he um, decided to take Chris down to the ice stadium, see how he liked it, and, well, from then on, it just snowballed. He, he did like it, and it's gone from there. What about your nerves? I mean, they seem so relaxed. Are you? No. <laughs> Not until after the championships. It's a build-up, really. Um, sort of get worse each day, I think. Everybody gets this tension before the championships. What about you, Mrs Torville? You're not losing any sleep from no, now until Friday? No, at all, no. They're happy, so we're happy. This is the moment of truth. Dressed in gold, but will it be a gold medal? and the original set pattern, throw in their trump card, and that 
what the fans think of it. Bouquet is coming all over the ice. It will take them an age to get back to their position. And here come the marks. but 5.9s from everyone that for technical merit seven judges this time reduced from nine for this world championships and there we have some sixes Ah, there you go, Torval and Dean, path to perfection oh no, I've never put on a pair of skates in my life no, why am I doing the Beatles? oh no <laughs> Our next piece of ephemera is from a radio broadcast. This is from the show Jim Lowe's New York, and this broadcast originally went out on October 7th, 1974. Some context for you. Jim Lowe hit it big in 1956 with the song Green Door. It sold 2.5 million copies and bumped Elvis Presley's Love Me Tender from the top spot on Billboard's bestsellers chart. Lowe was an eminent radio figure in New York for over 30 years, and for the purposes of this broadcast, he attended David Merrick's opening night party for Mac and Mabel. David Merrick was the producer on Mac and Mabel, so it makes sense that he would throw a party. We cut this program down from 40 minutes to a little over 10. Is that? Yeah, that's right. Which means a couple of Jim's interviews inevitably went the way of the dodo. But these are the voices you will hear today. David Merrick, Jerry Herman, Broadway columnist Earl Wilson, Bernadette Peters, a party guest who shall remain nameless for now, no spoilers, and Robert Preston. Patty, Benny, let's party! Well, go ahead and watch the Jets-Miami game. Go ahead, I'll tell you right now, you miss a hell of a show here if you do, because in Jim Lowe's New York tonight, well, it's Mac and Mabel night. Last night, Mac and Mabel opened on Broadway with Robert Preston and Bernadette Peters and Lisa Kirk. And I want to tell you right now, it was some show, and I've got the people on with me tonight. All the aforementioned, plus producer David Merrick, director Gower Champion, the scenic designer, Robin Wagner, Carol Channing was there, Earl Wilson, and many more. And you'll hear it right here in Jim Lowe's New York. Well, it's up to the critics now, and you're one of them, so I'm happy you, you like it. For what it's worth, I think it'll run for a long time. I really do. Uh, yeah, it, it's sad. It's happy in the beginning. It turns into a, a poignant story, and uh, I think that uh, it, it's going to be translatable into a long run. I hope so. Certainly, the I know about the audiences. We had four previews before the opening. The audiences love it, but we have to get past a few critics to get it to the audiences. Congratulations on a wonderful score. Oh, thank you, Jim. I'm I'm just coming down. I've been kind of numb for a few hours. You know, it's three years of my life that came to a head tonight. What are the last few hours like? Well, it's like uh, it's like the the uh, few minutes before you go to the electric chair. If you can if you can visualize that. I'm sure it is. Uh, three years this project has been in the offing, huh? Three years, and it all comes to a 
ahead in, in two hours on opening night. You always have one song that just absolutely grabs me. And in the show tonight, it was I Won't Send Roses. And coming up to the party here at the on Top of Time Life, there were people in the elevator singing the song already. Well, that, now, that's got to be a good sign, right? <laughs> that really thrills me because, you know, we've, we've played this show in Los Angeles, in San Diego, in Washington. And at every performance, I hear people hum on the way out. And really, that's what it's all about for oh, me. Oh, absolutely. If I can make people do that, I feel I've succeeded. And there have been so damn many shows in recent years that you couldn't do that in. That, uh, that's one of the reasons I always look forward to a Jerry Herman score. Well, thank you. I believe in songs. I think that what what is wrong with the musical theater is that we don't have as many songs uh, today as we did in the 30s and the 40s. And, uh, and I'm trying to do my part. Well, don't you think that one of the problems today is that in the old days, the record companies that had the cast album, uh, say it, it was Columbia, that automatically Stephen Eady would do a song, or Tony Bennett, or Andy Williams. Well, this doesn't happen anymore. Uh, and I think that, uh, that that used to help make hits. Yes, that's very true. Also, uh, the style of American music has changed, and uh, uh, rock scores uh, are not, you know, are, are not are not Broadway scores uh, for for the most part, with one or two exceptions. And um, but in in spite of that, for example, I have a record right now of When Mabel Comes in the Room that's climbing on the charts uh, every week. It's a good record. We're playing it on the station. Oh, terrific! And uh, it's the Michael Allen record, and and we're invading territory that. Uh, that is really foreign to show music, so that that thrills me. Yeah, absolutely. Did you enjoy the show tonight? I loved the whole thing, didn't you? I sat there in tears in that second act. It was very sad. I loved it. Well, the girl is so versatile. Of course, Bob Preston ran away with everything. But this girl, whom I saw in Dames at Sea, I guess, and then uh, uh, on the town, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. She played a lady cab driver, as I recall it. And she's so versatile, and she just... I didn't know she could dance as well. I, I didn't remember. She knocked me over when she came in the room because in the show tonight, of course, she was a brunette, and in real life, apparently, she's blonde. Well, she, uh, she's versatile in that respect, she's too. She's blonde, and she... And in fact, at the time of the one in town, Dames at Sea, we referred to her as a bit of a Marilyn Monroe look-alike. Uh, sexy That's quality. True. She was just wonderful tonight. You love her, and she's not even from Ohio, right? That's true. <laughs> I think she's from Queens. I believe so. And, yeah. uh, her real name is Lazar, L-A-Z-A-R-A, -A, I think it is, which is, of course, Italian. Mm -hmm. And her mother and father are here. And another thing that's very interesting, you might be interested in this, Jim. There's a, there's a Mabel Norman here who is a niece of Mabel Norman. Really? And she lives in, grew up in Staten Island, and she's got two grown sons, and she's a very young-looking woman. Uh, she'd be like a, well, her father was Mabel Norman's brother. Is that right? Her name Where is Mabel over on the other side over there. Well, I'll go catch up. Thanks for the tip. Okay, Jim. See you later. Nice to talk to you. Congratulations. It's a lovely show. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad you liked it. You broke my heart. Oh, but we love the show. You know, we really love it. The show has a lot of heart to it. And uh, I think that's always good, you know. Yeah, I almost touched you once. I sat on that little side seat right by the stage. Oh, really? I was almost part of the show. Oh, really? How did it feel being up there? <laughs> I loved it. Uh, in the show, you're a brunette. You're a blonde in real life. Yeah. I can't help but notice. Well, Mabel Norman was a brunette, and uh, I'm so thrilled her family is here. And um, the, the, it's, I think it's her niece who looks like her. But when she said she saw me up there, she got so upset because I looked so much like her that she got very moved. 
Uh, Laura Wilson told me that she was here. Uh huh. And that they loved the show and they were happy with it. So I'm so pleased.
lovely movie. I'd love to be able to make it now with the new so-called permissiveness of this piece. So we could work with that Hemingway story. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Robert Preston, God bless. Thank Thanks, you. baby. You may. Well, old friend, that's just about it for tonight. It's been quite a night, if anybody just happened to jump out and ask you. David Merrick, Gower Champion, Robert Preston, Bernadette Peters, Lisa Kirk, Jerry Herman, Carol Channing, Earl Wilson. If I'm leaving out anybody, I'm apologizing right now. Jim Lowe's New York again tomorrow night after the game. God bless. This is WNEW Metro Media Radio in New York. Earl Wilson could not remember Bernadette Peters' name if he was dangling over a shark tank. He's too busy talking about how, how sexy she is. She's so flexible. The dancing. The vibe is bad. But how about that cameo from Carol Channing? We took this out of the edit, but at one point, Carol refers to the song Time Heals Everything as Time Heals All Wounds, declaring it to be her favorite part of the evening. For the record, the show Carol would have been doing at that time was Lorelei, a.k.a. Gentlemen Prefer Blondes 2.0. It wasn't a revival, more like a version of the show that sought to beef up the role Carol originated in 1949. A truly wild idea. She played the part that Marilyn Monroe would play in the movie version of Blondes. It's, it's crazy. Okay, so, and then our next, our last, I should say, piece of ephemera is Michael Allen's cover of When Mabel Comes in the Room. This is the version Jerry Herman mentions at the party. You would have heard him talking about that. But the only evidence of it existing lies within that radio program, uh, that broadcast of Jim Lowe's New York. And so we shall play some of it for you. You now. discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show, Corleone! Everyone ready? Then away we go! (laughs) 
Our next main feed subject was a 2006 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It ran on Broadway for 910 performances. Do you know what it is? Ah, maybe you do. Ah, I'll tell you if you don't. It's The Color Purple. And that main feed episode will be dropping Wednesday, December 7th. That's right. We are taking a two-week break because next week we are going to produce a brand new episode of our Patreon series, M3, The Movie Musical Man. And then the week after that, Chris and I will be traveling about for the Thanksgiving holidays. So, I will see you back here on the main feed on December 7th. Mark your calendars. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. As a reminder, 100% of every monthly payout is donated to the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. We do not keep any of that money for ourselves. Absolutely not. That's why we have a sponsor. 5678 Coffee. They pay the bills. All of the money we generate, that goes to Planned Parenthood. You can donate one three, five, or ten dollars a month. If you donate one dollar a month, you get Monday early access to all of our main feed episodes, as well as a verbal shout-out each and every week. Let's do that now. Thank you so much for donating. Caroline, Helena, Greg, Andy, Elizabeth, Aaron, Jason, Jack, Vitor, Sydney, Katie, Elena, Anton, Ross, HJG, Jared, Eli, David, Dave, Christopher, Neil, Brian, Robin, Liz, Carrie, Maddie, Jonathan, Marcus, Rob, Shauna, Shiante, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. You also get 18 bonus episodes about the 73rd Annual Tony Awards, the trailer for the film Cats, The Little Mermaid Live, a full review of the film Cats, Emma at Chicago Shakespeare Theater, Take Me to the World, a Sondheim 90th birthday celebration, Hamilton via Disney+, Plus, Documentary Now, Original Cast Album, Co-op, John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch, Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey, Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square, Arlo the Alligator Boy, the trailer for West Side Story 2021, Vivo, the Tony Awards present Broadway's Back, Diana, Annie Live, and The Notebook at Chicago Shakespeare Theater. You also get season one, that's 12 episodes of Radio Boy, a series for which I check in with myself via the songs, the non-musical theater songs, I should say, that make me feel more like myself. And you get the first 13 episodes of M3, the movie Musical Man. So what is that? Well, that is a show in which we... We watch trilogies of movie musicals that are tied by a common theme. So next week, we will be talking about the Dark Ages trilogy. That's The Court Jester from 1955, Camelot from 1967, and Quest for Camelot from 1998. If you donate $3 a month, you get everything I've already described, plus a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing, all 10 episodes of Wildcats Everywhere, the high school musical podcast, and a special one-off all about Julie and the Phantoms. Remember, if you donate at least $3 a month, you will get a brand new, ooh, eight-episode, ooh, bi-weekly series starting March of next year. $5 a month will get you everything I've already described, plus you get to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss on the podcast. You get season one and two, that's 24 episodes of All I Ask of You, an advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera. You get all 14 episodes in our Broadway and Chicago review series and volumes one through five of Shout About It. These are collections, compendiums if you will, of five, six, seven, eight coffee ads and musical shoutouts from the first 125 episodes of the podcast. 
Ah, yes. Oh, here's our last tier, $10 a month. That gets you everything I've already described, plus exclusive announcements regarding future subjects of the main feed. Season one, that's 12 episodes of The Snug Club and 12 episodes of Turn It Off, a series dedicated to off-Broadway musicals. If you're listening to the show via Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, please leave a five-star review. We have not received a five-star review in quite some time, and that is how, I mean, when people read those reviews, that that's how they that's how they get that little inkling that maybe they want to listen to the show. So please take take some time. If you like the show, you gotta prove it. You gotta prove it. What is this voice I'm doing? If you're streaming the show, that could be on Spotify, or maybe you want to try Stitcher, Audible, Podbean. That's musicalmanpod.podbean.com. Follow me on Twitter for as long as it exists, at musicalmanpod, and email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Thanks as always to Patty and Benny in the booth, Alex Green for our beautiful logo, and Zach Little for our fabulous music. Oh, well, you know what that sound means. Fake surprise. <laughs> I've gotten used to it. Yes, just when the fun is starting, comes the time for parting? Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, off Wiedersehen, and good night.